Hi, you're listening to the sermon recording podcast of Awaken Church. Awaken is a church of missional communities whose vision is to see individuals experience healing through the gospel, be raised to their fullest potential among community, and sent out to live a life on mission. You can find out more online at awakenvb.com. And if you live in Hampton Roads, we invite you to check out our worship gathering in the Haygood area of Virginia Beach, Saturday evenings at 5 p.m. Thank you for listening. First off, give it up for the worship team, guys. The worship team is so awesome. I haven't got to speak since last fall. This is my first time getting to speak. And one of my favorite things about speaking is not only speaking, but getting to not be on stage and being able to be on the other side and be led by our fantastic worship team. So thank you, guys. You guys are amazing. Um, As I mentioned, the last time I spoke was the fall, and some pretty important things have happened in my life since last fall. And so one of the things that I want to do, most of you probably have uh, gotten to meet her already, but I want to introduce you uh, to the newest member of our family. And because we're still a little hesitant about germs because she hasn't had her shots yet and all of you are sickos and you don't realize it yet and so we're a little bit nervous about one-on-one so I brought some pictures so I want to introduce you guys Uh, this is Kaylin May and so this is us in the hospital I don't know what that red splotch thing on my neck is but don't look at that look at her she's cuter So yeah, we're just going to go through these real quick. Um, So that's one. There's her and her mom. This is obviously, we were still in the hospital. Uh, We ended up having to be with her in the NICU for over five, or for five days. So we were in the hospital for a week and a half. Uh, So we'll share that. I'll share that story, I'm sure, another time. But I just want to kind of show there's, uh, that's our attempt at trying to do like a nice posed photo. Um, Neither of us are very creative visually. I bought her that, and uh, that's one of my favorite outfits that she's in. I think we just got one or two more. Uh, That's her and her cousin, uh, who uh, they're only three months apart, and they don't look like they're only three months apart. Uh, But that's her cousin, Colette, who's going to get her in a lot of trouble as they get older, which is is cool. A little bit of trouble is okay. And then that's just another one of our our favorite pictures. So uh, that is Kaylin. We're so uh, excited. A lot of you guys know that we had been wanting a child for a long time. A lot of you guys prayed with us and for us. And so there's several thank yous I want to give out really quick. I want to thank you guys for for praying uh, for us. I want to thank you guys. Also, the church, we announced this already, but if you weren't there, uh, the church granted me several weeks of paternity leave uh, so that I was able to just stay at home with Heather and with Kaylin and to just be able to uh, just enjoy that time together. And that's not something that every new dad is afforded the opportunity to do. So I wanted to thank you guys on behalf of me and Heather for the church offering that to us. You guys, you don't know how many times we would go to the pediatricians or we'd go somewhere and I'd mention that I was given paternity, li- uh, paternity leave. And they're like, oh, where, where do you work? And I got, well, I work at a church. And they care about their staff and their leaders. And so it was great to be able to share that. And then uh, I thank you. You guys put together a meal train for us. And for like several weeks, we didn't have to worry about cooking or paying for food. Some of you guys mailed in like DoorDash and Grubhub gift cards to us. And some of you guys came by with home-cooked meals. And, and even before that, there were the showers. And you guys were very generous with gifts to make sure we had everything that we needed. And so we have not felt so taken care of as a family as we have here. So thank you guys so much for that. So I wanted to, uh, to start off by, by both introducing you and saying a big thank you from our family. So thank you so much. Uh, moving into what I want us to tackle tonight, 
Uh, we're going to try something a little different. Uh, we're going to, I'm, there's going to be several points in this message where we do a little bit of back and forth. Uh, so I'm going to need to hear from you, and if I don't hear from you, it's going to be awkward. So, uh, so I need to hear from you. So I want to start us off with a question, um, and there's no wrong answers here. You might think it's a trap or a trick question, depending on what other communities you may have been a part of in the past. But my first question, have you ever come across a passage of Scripture, a story or something that you've read, that just really rubbed you the wrong way, that made you really uncomfortable? Um, what, is, is there one, anybody would be willing to share, what is something that, when you came across it, it just didn't sit right with you? It made it, it was, it was, it was created some tension for you. Anybody? Yeah. Is that Steve? I can't, yeah, Steve. I'm not, I'm not bringing you a mic, just yell. Oh, well, <laughs> great, thank you, Steve. The question was, would anybody be willing to share, like, what, what passage of Scripture was it? Was there anybody who feels uh, vulnerable enough to share? Okay, Steve. Okay. <laughs> yes, and? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who may be not here that are listening on the podcast, he said Jesus healed a bunch of people, including a de- demon-possessed man, but afterwards he wanted to go tell everybody, and Jesus said, no, don't tell anybody what, what just happened. And so, yeah, that seems odd. It seems counter to what we would expect, and so creates a little tension. Anybody else? Anything you would share a passage you came across that either you didn't know how to take or that you just didn't really feel comfortable when you read it? No? Okay. Well, you guys should be doing more teaching than me because I'll be honest, I come across things all the time. And I've shared this before. I'm a wrestler when it comes to Scripture. When it comes to Christianity as a whole, I gave a whole message about there are the people who are the certain, that they never question things. They just feel safe all the time with what they've been handed, and that's not me. I'm a wrestler. I've got to turn it up, down, left, right. It doesn't matter if you told me something. I don't believe you unless I've gotten there on my own, right? And so I've got to wrestle with it until I feel like I can justify it or I can defend it. And so we're going to actually start off, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a passage this week that is one of those, that every time for years and years and years that I came across in the scripture, I said, I hate this passage. I hate this passage. I don't like talking about it. I don't like teaching about it. And so we're going to get there in a minute. First, I want to catch you guys up. We're in a series called Genesis. And uh, in what was truly just a, a genius, brilliant organizational move, we decided to cover the book of Genesis in three weeks. <laughs> and so the book of Genesis, if you're aware, has 50 chapters in it. And we devoted three weeks to it. And so we're doing a lot of fast-forwarding. And so if you were here last week, Philip talked about the beginning, talked about creation, talked about Adam and Eve in the garden, and he kind of left off with uh, what, what we come to know as the fall, which was there was, a, there was a, a break in relationship. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And that's where he left off. That's about Genesis 3 or 4, um, depending uh, on which of those is right is what that depends on. And, um, <laughs> and so we're doing some pretty, we're fast forwarding quite a bit because I'm going all the way to like Genesis 22, right? And so we're skipping a lot of pretty important things that I just, I just wanted to highlight. We're just going to fast forward right past them. So after that, after Adam and Eve leave the garden, uh, the world kind of really goes downhill. It starts off with uh, their two sons, uh, Cain murders uh, Abel. And so it starts there, and the world just keeps going downhill. And so eventually you get to fast forward a little more, you get to the flood story. And you hear about Noah and his family and how God said, I'm just starting all over. I'm going to choose Noah's family. You guys are going to go and 
this ark, I'm going to flood the world, and we're just going to hit reset on the whole thing, right? And so we have the flood. After the flood, uh, we have uh, a really interesting story. I would love to take uh, time another time to look at more, but we have the Tower of Babel. Uh, the people in the world create this big tower. They're working together. They say, if we work together, we can reach the heavens. And then God says, uh, no, let's not do that. And so confuses language. All of a sudden, people don't have one language anymore. They have all these different languages. And then we fast forward a little bit past that, and we have uh, what we're going to be talking about today, or at least the character that we're going to be talking about today, is a man named Abraham shows up on the scene. So from the point that the flood ends, and the point where God speaks to Abraham, is a period of about 300 years in between those two things. And there's no record in between those two things of God having spoken to anybody else. We have God talking to Noah at the flood, and then we have God calling Abraham. And so in between, there's, we, don't, we don't have any record. We don't, there's no stories told about God interacting with people in a personal way like that. And so when Abram gets called by God, I have to imagine he's just like completely blown away because this was not something, there were not, uh, there were not God followers at that time. Abram, uh, Abram uh, who he was called at the time, becomes Abraham, ends up being the father of a whole nation of God's people, Israel. But before that, this is pre-Israel. There were no people that were following God at this time. And so God calls Abraham, and I, I, I just wanted to take a real close look. This is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It'll be on the screen. And so the Lord said to, again, at this time, who is being called Abram, us uh, before God changes his name to Abraham, says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so this is God calling Abram, who will become Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you into a nation. A whole country of people will come from you. The interesting thing at this point is Abram doesn't have any children. So this is quite a hefty promise to be making uh, at this point in, Abra in Abraham's life. He has no children, and God says, I'm going to make a whole nation of people through you, and you're going to be a blessing to the world. The world is going to be blessed because of you and your family. And so this happens, and then it takes 30 years for God to give, his, uh, to give Abraham his first child. Well, at least his first child with his wife, we'll say that. And so 30 years later, Abraham finally gets an heir. Can you imagine being promised something and having to wait 30 years to see the fruit of that promise even begin to, for, to receive a, uh, an heir in his son Isaac? And so this is actually where we're going to pick up the story is with Isaac. And so everything we just fast forwarded just to get us from last week to this week, but this is where I want us to camp out. And so we're going to pick up a story talking about uh, Abraham and Isaac. And we're going to read it together, uh, but as I'm reading, I want you to pay very close attention to what God is doing in you as we read this story, because I'm, I'm giving you, I'm forewarning you, at the end, I'm going to, I want to hear from you. What is God stirring up in you as you, as you hear? So as I'm reading, as you're listening, as you're following along with me, um, I really want us to, uh, you to be paying very close attention. What is God doing in you? What stands out at you in the story? What does it connect with you? What, what do you feel is significant? What is God stirring up in you? So I'm telling you that ahead of time so that at the end uh, you, can, uh, you can jump right in with me. So we're going to be going ahead, uh, again, Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. And uh, so let's read together. Uh, it says, sometime later, again, it'll be on the screens behind me. 
Uh, hopefully I'm reading the right translation. Looks like I should be. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, note that it took three days of them traveling together. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his, uh, said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I want us to pause there for a little bit. Uh, Nicole, I may highlight certain verses. Uh, if, if, yeah, you're awesome. You're the best. Um, and so I want us to pause uh, for a minute. And I want us to not look at this as just words on a page. And I want you to put yourself into the story. I want you to put yourself into that situation. So here's Abram, excuse me, Abraham, who he and his wife had been uh, wanting a child. Wanted a child so bad that he ends up sleeping with, uh, with a, a slave in order to create a child. And then uh, this happens before Isaac happens, but just wanting, wanting a child so bad. And finally God comes to him and says, not only am I going to give you one child, I'm going to, from you will come a whole nation of people who are going to be a blessing to the world. And then 30 years later, you receive the seeds of that promise in one child. And then... Some years after that, God says, Abraham, I want you to take that child and I want you to make him a sacrifice for me. What kind of things was Abraham going through? What kinds of emotions? And then not only does he say, okay, I have to do it, he has to take his son and servants and they go and they're traveling for over three days to get to the place where this is supposed to happen. How many times did Abraham run through this in his head? Did God really tell me to do this? Is this really what I'm supposed to do? Can you imagine him? What's it going to be like? Painting, painting the picture. He probably killed his son over and over again in his head for three days as they walked along together. A couple things I, I, I want to point out. Uh, in verse 5, the NIV uses the word boy. In some other translations, they use the word lad or they use the word young man. This word in the Hebrew actually has a very wide age range attached to it, right? So it could mean anything from an infant up to a, a, a young man in his 20s. Okay, so we don't know exactly how old Isaac was, but he's somewhere in that range from infant to uh, a young man in his 20s. And we have some, some hints throughout the story that he's probably on the older edge of that, and there's a few things that, that tells us that. Um, in verse 6, uh, we, we see that he carries the wood. 
he carries the wood that he's going to be sacrificed on. And so a child is not going to be able to carry the load of that much wood. And so probably was pretty physically capable. If you'll notice, the only things that Abraham, who in this life, depending on whole, uh, at this time in his life, depending on how old Isaac was, was somewhere between uh, 70 and 100 years old is where Abraham is. So he is not carrying all the wood for the burnt offering, right? He's got two things, a knife and some fire. And they take all the wood for the offering off of a donkey and they give it to Isaac to carry. So again, physically capable, not a child, right? And so uh, in, in, in verse 5, Abraham, I'm sorry, back one, thank you. He says to his servant, stay with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. What is going on in, in Abraham's head right now? Is he, is he lying? Is he straight up, is he, is he trying to hide what he's about to do? He doesn't want servants to know. Is this a glimmer of like faith that Abraham has that he's clinging on to some desperate hope that God's going to change his mind? And so he's lying not to them, but he's more lying to himself of no, this is not really going to happen. God is going to do something. And so don't worry, we'll be back because he's clinging to that desperate hope that that's true. We have in uh, verse um, seven, uh, Isaac says, spoke up to his father and he asked him, uh, where's, where's the lamb? I see the wood, I see the father, uh, the fire. Where's the lamb? Is Isaac perceptive? Has Isaac started to figure out what's about to happen, right? We've got him carrying his own wood for the sacrifice, which if you don't see a parallel to what will happen in the New Testament of Jesus carrying the wood of his own cross that he's about to uh, be put to death on, Isaac is carrying as a, as, a, as a sacrifice the wood that he is going to be put on and that he's going to be killed on. And he's saying, I don't see a lamb. And Abraham says, no, God will provide the lamb. Again, is he placating his son because he doesn't have the heart to tell him what's about to happen? Or does he still believe in, in his heart that God's not going to go through with what he says? We don't know. There's nothing that, uh, that tells us explicitly. Um, but let's pick up the story. I'm actually just going to read it off the screen at this point. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 9, the very next verse. So when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. If Isaac hadn't figured it out by that point, I think he gets an idea of what is in store for him now. But here's the thing that's important. Abraham is how old? Yeah, 70 if, if, if uh, Isaac is an infant. And we have a lot of evidence that he's much closer to the 20s range. So he's probably, Abraham is probably between 90 and 100 years old. He's not going to be able to physically overpower uh, his young son in, his, in the prime physical condition of, of his 20s. So there was an obedience and a submission that Isaac knew what was going on and still did not fight back against his father. He allowed himself to be bound. He allowed himself to be laid upon an altar. And then in verse 10, it says, Then he, being Abraham, reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Notice the exclamation points. There's some urgency. I need you to hear me real quick. I said, here I am, Abraham replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So we have Isaac allowing himself to be bound, 
allowing himself to be put on an altar, and Abraham taking the knife, and it says he took the knife and went to kill him. He's raising it up. So whatever Abraham believed was going to happen, at that point, I have to assume that he had abandoned all hope and said, okay, this is what we're about to do, and he's going to do it. And then at the very last minute, God says, wait, 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 don't. What's going through Abraham's mind at that point? I mean, obviously being flooded with relief, I'm sure, but, but what else is going, on, uh, is going on in his head? Again, he's somewhere between 100. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just looking at my notes. I'd gotten the ranges wrong. He's between 100 and 130 years old. So he's probably, again, on that older side. And, uh, and his son allowed himself to be bound and raises the knife. And at the last minute, God says, wait, wait, don't do it. He's not the sacrifice I've provided this provided this other sacrifice for you to use instead. I want to pause for a minute. Uh, I mentioned I, I want this to be a dialogue. So as we've been going through this story together, I want to hear from you, what has God been stirring up in you? Again, I mentioned this is a story that until very, very recently, every time I came through this story, I hated reading this story. I hated it. That doesn't mean you may not, right? But I would love to hear what God is stirring up in the room. What, what is God stirring up in you? So a couple guidelines. Uh, don't, please don't go longer than a full minute. We want people to, other people to have space to be able to share as well. But I would love to hear what God is stirring up in you. And also recognize that we're all uh, human and we're all different and we all have our own opinions. So you may hear something from somebody else that you disagree with and that's okay. You don't need to use their time to, to argue, their, argue against them, right? I just want to know, this is just a chance for us to hear from one another, what is God stirring up in the room right now? So as I read that story, what is something that stood out to you as significant or that stirred up something in you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So attesting the measure of that faith, there's a, there's a, a sense in which that his faith was purely theoretical until he had to put it into action. Right? You don't know how much faith you have until you have to act on something. Otherwise, it's just kind of theoretical. And so, yeah, I love that you called out the, the parallels. Again, we, we had Isaac carrying his wood and then Jesus carrying his cross. We have the being able to not go to the altar, being able to overpower his father, and then Jesus being willing to be obedient to his father, even though in the garden we see that he was not really that excited about it. And also even the language of, of God saying, your son, your only son whom you love is the same language we see in, in the gospel of John that God refers to his son, Jesus. So yeah, a lot of great parallels there. What else? What else is, has, was stirring up in you as, you as you read this? Some tension or something that, you, that came to mind as we read through this together? So it's just confusing and frustrating in the sense that why was the test necessary? Or, or what, what was it that, that God, yeah, what was the purpose of the test outside of just seeing if he would do it? Okay. Anybody else? Say the word fear? Okay. In what sense? Okay. So having, yeah, so having a fear of the Lord that's not, uh, terror, or not being afraid, but fear that is an awe and a respect that says that I may not understand what's going on, but because I have this awe of you, I'm going to trust that your ways are, are over mine. Is that? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, right, right. Anybody else? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. No, that's fantastic, and, uh, you know, we're, 
I'm, I'm going to touch on some of those in just a minute, so I'm glad. Uh, but yeah, so again, for those uh, who aren't here that may be listening on, online, uh, these ideas uh, that were prevalent in the culture of scarcity, this idea that I, I, I don't have enough, and so I need to accumulate everything that I can, and God challenging and throwing out that notion by saying, I'm going to take the thing that's most important to you and, and ask that of you. And then also challenging the, the idea of redemptive violence, of God saying, no, I'm not going to be a God that's characterized by this, but instead, uh, I'm going to throw that idea out as well, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about that in just a minute. Anybody else want to contribute? Okay, fantastic. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you for, for sharing what, what God was, was stirring in you as, as we're going. As I said earlier, I'm wrong like all the time, and so I need a lot of uh, collective correction from the community to make sure uh, that we're on the right page together. Um, as, I've, as I've said, I've always hated this story, and so as a, as a younger kid, I've talked to pastors, I've talked to youth leaders, I've talked to people that were like, help me understand this better, because all I see is God being... Uh, just real, I can't use the word I used with my wife when we were talking about this this week, but God just being real petty. God saying, I'm going to ask you if you'll do this just to see if you'll do it. And I think there's this idea that, well, because he didn't actually have him do it, that it's no harm, no foul, right? But that has never sit right with me at all, because what about those three days that Abraham is over and over in his mind thinking, I'm going to have to kill my own son? It's like those prank shows. You guys ever watch those prank shows where it's like, boom, we have to call you up. Your wife's been in a horrible accident. She's dead. And you just see like this grief and this torment and this that's going on. And then at the end, it's like, just kidding. Your wife's fine. It's a prank. Like, that's a terrible prank. Because the, the trauma and the, 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 the pain that you experience is not erased, right? You're really having to live through that. And so for me, the idea that it's all good because God didn't actually ever plan for him to kill Isaac has never sat well with me. That seems outside of the character of God as I have come to know him. Does that make sense? And so this is why this story has always made me uncomfortable. It's always something that's rubbed me the wrong way. But as I appreciate this story today, and unfortunately I'm going to have to fly through this pretty quickly uh, uh, here at the end, but I no longer see this as a story about God demanding something from Abraham, and I no longer see this even as a story of Abraham's obedience to God in the face of him asking to do something pretty ridiculous. I have come to understand this story now of God revealing his character to Abraham. God revealing to Abraham what kind of God he was. And in order to truly appreciate that, I think you have to recognize the culture that Abraham lived in and the kind of framework that he had. And so uh, in this culture, it was not common at all for child worship to be a part of following a particular God. That was not uncommon at all. And we see evidence of this because a few chapters earlier in part of the book that we fast-forwarded through, you see God saying that he's going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, don't do it. Abraham pleads with God. There are innocent people in those cities. You can't just destroy innocent people. And so Abraham pleads for the lives of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. But when he says, I need you to sacrifice your own son, Abraham says, all right, that makes sense. I'll do that. Because it was, that was what worship 
was in the, in the lives of the people who claimed, because obviously God, this, is God's first, this is God's first guy, <laughs> is Abraham, right? You had people worshiping all kinds of other gods. It was a very polytheistic, pagan culture. And so there were other gods, and a lot of their worship involved child sacrifice. And so when God says to Abraham, I want you to do this, Abraham doesn't even question it. He says, yeah, that makes sense. This is what I understand worship of a God to look like. And so he had built in this cultural framework of what it looked like to follow and worship a God. And so when he does this, this is no longer in my mind about God's demand. It's not about Abraham's obedience. It's about God saying, I will never ask you to do that. God said, you've seen how people worship other gods. You've seen the kinds of things. You've seen what that looks like. And I'm here to show you that I am not like that. I will never ask you to do something like this. If there is ever a sacrifice that's going to be needed, I will provide the sacrifice. And so this has become a story that I actually don't hate anymore because to me this is something about God revealing his character to Abraham. And so Abraham comes to know God better. And so I think what this is, where I want us to kind of to, to close out with this, uh, this evening, is that there becomes a question of, of, of culture versus calling. Abraham had been called by God to follow him, and he had made promises and made a, a covenant with him, all the things that he was going to do through that calling. But there was a culture that Abraham lived in that he understood that he actually, he, he was viewing what it looked like to his call through the lens of culture. Does that make sense? I'm viewing what it looks like to follow God through the culture that I exist in and the framework that I've been given. And that says child sacrifice is okay. But the call that God had for him says, no, that's not the kind of God that I am. Uh, When I was in high school, uh, I I grew up in the church, but middle school, early high school, I, I walked away from it. And towards the end of high school, I came back. And so when I came back to the church, uh, I immediately, some of you guys who have known me for a long time know this, I, I, I came back and the first thing that I did was I got rid of all of my secular music. Anything that didn't have, uh, anything that had, <laughs> it was funny, I created my own little like qualifications and if it had any profanity, it was gone. If it didn't have any profanity and the stuff was pretty positive, I could, I could keep that, but I wouldn't listen to it as much as I would listen to like the Christian bands that I had. So I got rid of all the secular music. I got rid of all the clothing, any band t-shirt that I had that I got rid of their CD. I got rid of that t-shirt, right? And so for me at that moment, I said, this is what it looks like to follow God. And do I feel like the same way today? Absolutely not. Do I feel like in order to be a Christian, in order to follow God, you can't listen to any secular music? No, of course not. Do I feel like you can't wear anything but like, I was going to say like, Life, I guess Lifeway still is a thing, right? Okay, so wear t-shirts that you buy in Lifeway. I was, the, a family Christian was like the store that I avoided, but that, those are all gone now. No, I think there still is a family Christian. And like heaven and earth, like yeah, those were not my clothing shops, right? Do I feel like in order to be a Christian, you have to only wear stuff that you buy there? Or like, what's the cool one? There's like a cool one now, right? The knot of this world, is that the cool one? Okay, right? So like, again, this is my point. I don't think those things have anything to do with what following Jesus looks like. But when I was a 17-year-old and I decided I needed to get back my life on track and follow God, that was the first thing that I did. Because I had a cultural framework that was provided for me that said this is what following God looks like. 
And it took years and years of following him and understanding God's character to understand what his actual calling was on my life and not viewing that calling through the framework of what culture said that that calling was going to look like. Does that make sense? And so uh, this, is, this is really what I want us to, to wrestle with. Each of us is called. Throughout this series, we're talking about what it means to be human. And last week, Philip shared that each of us is incomplete. And so we go to these wells to try to fill it, the wells of ourself, the wells of others, the wells of the world, the wells of religion, to try to make ourselves complete. But those things don't fulfill us, right? Because we only find completion through God the Father, through our relationship with Jesus, through the Spirit working in our lives. So not only is all of us incomplete, but each one of us is called. You have been set apart, set apart and sent out. And so, but we have to figure out what does that look like? What is the calling that God has placed on our lives versus what does the culture say following God is supposed to look like? And so there's two challenges I have for you. Uh, we have different pathways that we feel like disciples should be walking in. That we call them pathways because we feel like it's a journey, right? It's a progress. And so there's two pathways that I want to challenge you in this evening as I wrap up. The first one is the pathway of Scripture. If you want to know what the calling that God has placed on your life, what does it look like to be a Christ follower, if you're not examining the example that we've been given in Scripture, then you are going to let culture determine what it looks like to live out your calling. And I think even in the predominant Christian culture that we see, we see evidence every day of people saying what a culture looks like to follow Jesus is not what Jesus looks like in the Bible. And so it's not just a matter of the church versus secular culture. It's a matter of what does this say versus what is the predominant Christian culture in our country and in our nation. And so I want to challenge you to be regularly in Scripture. What does that look like for you? It could be every day. It doesn't have to be every day. Maybe you're not in this at all. And so for you, maybe just taking two or three days a week and saying, I'm going to take some time and sit down with this and do some journaling, taking some notes. I would encourage you, if you don't know where to start, start with a gospel. Because whatever your calling is, the end result is for you to look and act more like Jesus Christ. And so start with the gospel. And what does this say about who Jesus is? The second uh, challenge I have for you, the second pathway that I want to challenge you with this evening, is the pathway of relationship. Because you need to surround yourself with a community of people who are also trying to discern what it looks like to be true to be a disciple of Jesus and a missionary in this world. Because I can guarantee you, if you're not surrounding yourself with people that are doing that alongside of you, then you're going to allow the culture to give you the framework of what it means to be a Christ follower. There's a beautiful thing that happens in community. Earlier when I said something wrong, David corrected me, right? It needs to happen more often. There's a beautiful thing. If I were to go into my missional community this week and say, guys, I feel like God's telling me that I need to sacrifice my new daughter, Kaylin. I can guarantee you there will be a room full of people that say, that is absolutely not what God is telling you you need to do. If we don't surround ourselves, and obviously that's an extreme example, <laughs> but if we don't surround ourselves with people that are walking in the same direction, that are also oriented towards being a true and healthy disciple of Christ, then we're going to allow culture to give us the framework of what it looks like to be a disciple. And so those are the two challenges I have for you. I'm going to close in prayer, um, and then the team is going to lead us in a couple more songs.
Holy God, I thank you for, for speaking to us this evening. I thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself to me as I've walked with you over the years. I thank you for the way that you make yourself available to all those who seek you. And so I pray for those in here who may be wrestling with, I know I've been given a calling because I trust and I believe that every person in here has a calling. And so as we wrestle with what does that look like, what does it mean to really be a disciple, what does it mean to really be a Christ follower, not what the, the, the world says or what culture says, but what, is, what does it truly mean? I pray that those who seek that, the answer to that question, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would make yourself known. I pray that we would find, that through the, the, find the answer to that through Scripture as we come to read your word, as you reveal yourself to us, the character of your son Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, the, his ways and his works, that you would reveal who you are through that Scripture. And we pray that we would find it within the confines of community. People that correct us, people that love us, people that challenge us, and people that will go with us as we seek to be missionaries in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.